appreciate that is the notion that okayness is constructed culturally and we can have biases because okayness may mean something different for someone who's white and someone who's a person of color. And we're increasingly challenging these biases through our theories. At the moment, we're awakening to uh, diversity. We're more aware that we need to co-construct okayness. So therefore, I'm not imposing my idea, my privilege, my position. I'm coming from a position of openness and curiosity. And for me, that essence makes my heart sing. This is Three People in Your Head, a podcast about getting the best out of yourself and others. Co-hosted by Matt Taylor and myself, Parul Narora. Sponsored by the International Transactional Analysis Association and the European Association for Transactional Analysis. In this episode, we speak with Piotr Yusik. Piotr is a certified transactional analyst in the counselling field a coach working with individuals and organisations such as NGOs, a mental health counsellor in the UK, and a group facilitator. Among other things, we discuss culture and diversity, the significance of language, and the influence of nature and place on his work as a transactional analyst. We hope you enjoy. So, Piotr, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Maybe you could go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, your roles, responsibilities, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. So hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited. I'm a counsellor on my way to PTSDA, and I divide my working life into three sets of roles. So I'm a mental health counsellor working for the NHS in the UK, working remotely. I'm actually based in Antigua, Guatemala. That's where I speak to you from. And yeah, so part of my work is mental health counseling in the NHS and in private practice. I suppose the biggest denominator for my clients is that they're very diverse. So it can be anyone who may be mine indigenous, maybe someone who's Mexican living in Poland, it may be someone who's Polish living in London. So pretty diverse group of clients speaking various languages. I also work as a coach with individuals working in organizations in Guatemala. They tend to be involved in social change. And lastly, I work as a group facilitator. So just a couple of weeks ago, I was running a workshop for a group of young people at a coffee plantation just behind my house. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds very glamorous, your international lifestyle. I was really curious about how, with this very broad work base that you have, so how did you get involved with TA and how does that integrate with all these various different roles that you've got? Oh, I suppose the journey That's a big was... Question. Uh, I know. Okay. First um, of all, how did you come across TA? Well, this was in back in 2005. I was on a gap year and at the time I studied molecular biology in the UK. Yes, wow. I did. And you were at Manchester University? I was at Sheffield University. Oh, Okay. Yeah. So after studying molecular biology for three years and feeling rather fed up and sort of feeling in my gut that I'm probably pretty much overadapted and perhaps not really following my own desires, but perhaps, <laughs> you know, some other scripts. So I took a gap year between my third and fourth year of university and I saw this leaflet at the University of Manchester. They had courses for the public. And when you're on a gap year and being curious, there's all sorts of things that you're looking for. And 
there was this line about you know this idea that we live certain scripts and there is such a thing as autonomy and then you can choose and you can clarify and you've got choice around your destiny and just thought this is exactly what i need on my gap here <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's how i got involved i did my one-on-one then um, finished my university degree working in a microbiology lab and worked as a science teacher for several years and then try and moved to the uk and trained in tier counseling it was yeah fantastic interesting so i was at manchester university studying microbiology in the oh, 1990s. Yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> and, but I was really curious as to, was this a course linked to the University of Manchester then? Yeah, they had a department which was courses for the public. So once I was just like roller skating next to the university through the rain, you know, just feeling <laughs> like as if I were in some sunny destination, just plowing through the rain and I just see courses for the public. So I just entered. And I suppose it's just, you know, those little impulses. If, you know, you ask me, how did that happen? You know, sometimes our body or curiosity or impulses that come from the environment invite us. And it's that openness. Oh, something's calling my attention here. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And so from that, you say you trained in counselling, mm. in TA counselling, because this is obviously an episode where we're talking about the field of counselling. What was it that led you to choose to go into that field as opposed to psychotherapy, educational or organisational TA? I like that question. Mm. It's because the broad range of roles that you can get involved in, so you can work as a mental health counsellor, you can work as a coach, you can do facilitation, you can do that in formal settings, in formal settings. And it really satisfied my curiosity in this need. Oh, I think of TA, it's, it's like water trickling down into many environments where it may be needed. And it's just, we don't have to be in a psychotherapeutic office, psychotherapy office. There's many other contexts where we can go and bring tea into the world brilliant i love that illustration mm. about the water trickling down that's not similar for you isn't it Paul? in terms of the roles the counseling roles yeah i was thinking when you were talking about why counseling and i think it's very interesting the metaphor of where it needs to go it will flow and a lot of times i think we find ourselves pulled in the direction that we most need to contribute like for me it was working with this NGO and being a part of it and giving my time. And I realized that counseling was an additional way that I could do that, you know, without just being there and contributing financially or contributing with my time with resources or teaching people, you know, people who are going through mental health issues, teaching them yoga or pottery, but you could actually add that by learning counseling. And I think that trickle of using counseling in so many places is quite an interesting metaphor and mm. resonates with me. Yeah. yeah. How did you end up in Guatemala? I'm really curious about mm. that. Well, back in 2016, I was backpacking through Central America, through Southern Mexico, Belize and Guatemala. Mm. And I arrived at Lake Atitlan. And in some way, I felt invited by the land and by the beauty. Then one thing led to another. I met someone from a research center. And the following year, I still worked as a teacher in London in an international school. So I took the holidays to come to Guatemala and run a coaching project with the Ministry of Education with a research center. I loved it. You know, first time I stood in front of a group of indigenous Mayan people, uh, 
absolutely terrified about to run a course uh, <laughs> in Spanish in TA. Oh, really? Given that, yeah. Yeah. And then slowly but surely things developed. And I was really fascinated by the intersection of how TA resonated with people who are from a different culture, from a different perspective. And of course, we had certain things that were a bit like time and uh, the notion of time, you know, would be there and people would just be arriving for 30 or 45 minutes after an hour coming in late. <laughs> um, yeah. So after that, I got a teaching job at the university in Solola around the lake where I was teaching psychopedagogy students and I was teaching counseling skills to teachers and writing my CTA. Yeah. So this was a really just wonderful unfolding experience, which led me to be here right now with you. That's amazing. It sounds like you're a person who is, as you described, open to new experiences. And you sound like an explorer in more ways than one. Mm. Is that part of your, well, I guess I'm curious, I'm going to edit that out. But I guess I'm curious as to how the theories of TA or your embodiment of TA in your life adds to your openness or your exploration of who you are and your experience with all these widespread of different cultures. So you obviously speak great English. I'm hearing you speak Spanish. I haven't even asked you where you're from originally. So obviously mm. you're multilingual. So you, you have this very broad experience. And I'm wondering how TA has helped with you understanding yourself. Mm. Great question. Let me just pause on that one. Feel it in my, <laughs> feel it in my body. Yeah. yeah. I'll just come back to this idea of what is okayness. And that increasingly in TA, there is the notion that okayness is constructed culturally. And we can have biases because okayness may mean something different for someone who's white and someone who's a person of color. And we're increasingly challenging these biases through our theories. And we had these theories for years and years and years. And I think at the moment, we're awakening to uh, diversity. We're more aware that we need to co-construct. And I suppose that comes since the inception of co-creative TA. We need to co-construct okayness. So therefore, I'm not imposing my idea, my privilege, my position. I'm coming from a position of openness and curiosity. And for me, that essence makes my heart sing because I can be the oppressor with all the meaning intentions. I can be the oppressor just because I belong to the majority. And that is important. And I love though that the co-creative approach that enables us to explicitly consider the, these dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more. We haven't done an episode on co-creative TA yet. So if you're listening, Keith and Graham, <laughs> we're, we're going to invite you to do that soon. Yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit more by what you understand of co-creative, especially for, for the listeners who aren't as well-read in TA, or maybe this is the first time they're hearing about transactional analysis. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more what that means to you, the co-creative approach. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose putting in the center this idea of intersubjectivity is a big loaded word. Yeah. But it means that there isn't a truth we created in our relationship. There, there's a field between us. We exchange information and energy. And from that, we have a sense of our relationship. Now that the relationship can be about the past or it can be about the present, right? And a lot of the time, it may be outside of awareness. 
So the really important piece in co-creativity for me is the notion of present-centered relating, which fits very nicely with the counseling field. We want to relate in the here and now. So I don't want to relate to you as if I did to my parents or as uh, to some other authority figure. I want to be in that field of inviting adult on both sides. Yeah, so that's the first piece. Apart from that is the notion of shared responsibility. So if you look at some forms of psychotherapy counseling in the past, there would be this notion of one person psychology. You know, there's the expert knows who defines reality. And if we share responsibility, we're both responsible for the meaning we create. As a counselor, therapist, coach, I am also proactive and the client is proactive. So we're both there to do something, not to sit in the room and wait for something to emerge. Yeah. Yeah. And this last principle of weeness, which I think is really good because, well, TA well, grew in a society that's predominantly individualistic. If you look at the scores actually between Guatemala and the US, the scores, I think, of individualism is like 96 on a specific on the Hofstede scale. It's 96 for individualism and it's like maybe six in Guatemala. You know, they're just like opposite poles. Really? Yeah. So this principle of weeness to me really underlines the importance of us, of the relationship, of the collective, not just what I want and what my contract is and never mind what you want. It's you and me. We're here. We're brothers. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, you can probably see how this fits in. I was curious about what you said earlier that you found yourself in this place and you said, here's a bunch of indigenous people and I'm going to talk to you about TA. And I wonder how you went thinking about that, you know, how you think the application of TA with people who've not been exposed with it, how that's universal and what they can take from it. Mm. Well, the honest answer at the moment, I didn't know what would emerge. That's the honest <laughs> answer. I was praying for the best as we do when we embark on new adventures. And we have to admit that everyone understands words such as parent, adult, and child. These are certain universal archetypes. The idea of an agreement and contract, the idea of a script and a life story, so I think it's that adaptability of TA that it can be both very culturally universal and culturally specific. And that's not my idea, by the way. That's Marco Mazzetti who writes about that. You know, in one of his, <laughs> yeah, I'm not stealing ideas here. It's just that he looks at yeah. how TA really can hold what is universal and what is specific as being a meta model, really, but not just them model, but a meta model. So then being in front of a group of indigenous people, we start to, you know, look at models. Here's parent, adult, child. Here's okayness. And they just get it. Simply they get it. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. There is something really, we use this term all the time, accessible. It's really interesting to hear your perspective of teaching a group of people from a very different culture from a typical Western culture and them getting it, you know, them understanding. Yeah, I suppose that is true. And yet, to a degree, the idea that you have a choice, for instance, so really a high degree of collectivism means that contracting isn't that easy. There's lots of sort of second guessing or who wants uh, what, you know, the boundary in the relationship in, in the very collectivistic context gets a bit blurry. 
So contracting may be, you know, quite arduous, really. And you can get stuck in all sorts of ideas and also looking at power imbalance. So what we do in TA, we name things, yeah. right? So if I go and name something, well, this might be a passive behavior, for instance. In some way, I'm alienating people by naming and putting an etiquette on that. So it's really important to have that balance of embodiment of TA, feeling it, living it together, and maybe not even naming sometimes. Yeah. So how do you manage that tension between naming and alienating and or not alienating, as the case may be? Wow. Oh, what an interesting question. I suppose you need to come back to language. I know that's one of your passions, isn't it? Your, mm. your thoughts on language. Yeah, tell us more. So a few moments ago, I used a phrase, for instance, we are brothers. And by using that term, I've excluded Peru because you're a woman. Ah, yeah. So, so I made a sweeping generalization, for instance. Yeah. I did notice that. <laughs> did you? Yeah. Ah, yeah. great that you spotted that, Piotr. Yeah. So that is, for instance, how do we use language? And do we come back and explore the intention behind it? So what's the psychological level? Are we aware of it? Is there permission to name that, to name what actually that there is a label? Do you know what I mean? So naming the labels. Yeah. Naming the limits of the labels, I suppose. Right. I'm really curious now. What was your experience, Parul, when that phrase was used? Obviously, it's not a critique of you, Piotr. You called mm -hmm. it, you named it. But yeah, I was yeah, just wondering what that was like for you. And I think what's interesting is that you're aware of it because you brought it back and you mm -hmm. said that it was clearly a limitation of language which might make people feel excluded. And I feel that when someone feels excluded, they're very quick to spot it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what happened for me when you said we are brothers. Suddenly, I felt like I wasn't here or that suddenly I'm not part of that unit. And I think that's a very interesting concept because we are talking about it. It's making me think about what you said about the kind of people you work with, your clients primarily being people living in a different place from where they culturally belong. And that sense of being separate from a unit or a community can be so heightened mm -hmm. in these very small things when you don't even mean it, it's a phrase, people understand it, but yet it can just stick out and how that can create feelings in a person, especially if left unaddressed. Like if we hadn't talked about it, it would have been one of those things, right? Like yeah. men talking about men and just, yeah, yeah. forgetting their women in the room. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't even notice it. I mean, I was kind of looking down at what questions I might be thinking about later as well. But it didn't even register. And so mm. it's fascinating, isn't it, how language can create that sense of distance as well as mm. connection. Yeah. And I'd like to add something as well here, that looking at the limitation of language as well, I find the developments in EcoT very useful because in some way that over-reliance on language, you know, we can talk things to death sometimes and then we lose a certain connection with other parts of us that may not necessarily be verbal. There was an article written back in the 80s, I think, in the THA, which was something like Human Disconnection and the Murder of Mother Earth. A really lovely title. And the author talks... Very evocative title. Mm -hmm. The Murder mm -hmm. of Mother Earth. Yeah. So we get lost 
in ideas, in intellectualization. We disconnect from the body and that disconnect from our bodies paralleled with the disconnect from the earth. And actually, if you look at the Mayan cosmovision, the female energy is represented as Ish, so it's the female energy. And there's one indigenous feminist who talks about those parallels between colonization and patriarchy, that in some way we have exploited bodies of women for years through patriarchy, and that's what has been going on in our relationship to the earth. Yeah, It is an act of murder yeah. if we don't have the awareness. This is our home. This is where we belong. Mm. This is where we create our scripts. And this is what creates conditions for autonomy. That's the fertile ground for our being. Mm. Yeah, I was reading a book called The Patterning Instinct by a chap called Jeremy Lent. And he talks about the Western mindset towards the earth and this idea of dominion and the mechanics of the world that we live in, that the world through Newtonian science has seen, or the universe is seen as this big mechanism, like a big watch. And the way that has influenced the loss of the relationship with the earth. And he talked in the book about indigenous cultures, talking about how planting and harvesting crops or digging or plowing the earth would be like scraping or cutting the mother's skin. You know, they use these very evocative and illustrative ways of describing how gently they worked with the earth and with nature. Mm. Yeah. When you talk about our sense of connection to our bodies or our loss of connection to our bodies, can you say more about that and what you mean by that? So somebody who hasn't done any training in that kind of psychotherapy field or a counseling field where we're talking about our sense of embodiment. How do you language that? How do you explain that being reconnected or connected to our body? Well, I suppose in some way you don't explain it, you do it. So in some way, it's about bringing experiences that may be nonverbal. So you might be eating with people in a workshop, you might be cooking something, you might be walking, you're doing things. And so for instance, as I was listening to you, I feel a softening in my belly and, and I feel move and I feel my face relaxing and so that's developing that sensitivity what's happening in the body as I'm listening to you mm. and how is the body a channel of precious information because the body knows in many way so it's developing that mindful attention towards the body uh or whether it's walking or eating or dancing or singing it's just being in the body yeah and for somebody who it's their pattern or they've learned or adapted in a way where they're not able or they're less connected to that, what guidance would you give them in order to cultivate that sense of being able to attune to their body? Mm -hmm. It's a very important point because if someone is traumatized, they need to go very slowly and gently with love and care and, and never go too much. So in, in some way, you know, again, talking about privilege and exclusions, I can be talking to you because I've got access to that experience and that comfort yeah. and feel something and perceive. And for some people, it may just be a long way together. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's acknowledging that it is also a privilege to feel certain things. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think your practice of mindfulness, has that influenced that, your sense of embodiment, being in connection with your body? 
I would say it's mindfulness with eco-tearing. Mindfulness with eco-tear. Great. Yeah. So I remember when I did some training in eco-tear with Charles Barrow and Haley Marshall, this was in deep lockdown. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just connecting through the internet to people being in the UK and it was something yeah. like four o'clock in the morning. We had to go outside and do some meditation out there. <laughs> crack of dawn, meditating in front of a tree for an hour and see what happens, right? Wow. So, yeah. But it's about inviting all sorts of experiences from the environment. So in, in some ways, well, the environment will teach you. Just simple going for a walk. That's a lot of learning coming from that. Right. And in doing so, paying attention to your body mm. and to what you're sensing. Okay, great. One of the things that you mentioned that you spend time doing, I think you said cooking is one of your passions or hobbies. And I think there's such a connection between that sensorial aspect of cooking, feeling, touching, smelling, tasting, and how nature plays such a big role of being mindful when we are doing that or being also maybe taking responsibility or for all the discounting that we do when we are not being mindful yeah. about how we grow that stuff and the connection with body. So that connection is, I don't know if it's obvious to you, but it's beautiful how it comes through, right? Between what you talked about, the environment, talked about our connection with our body, and you talked about cooking as something. Oh, you didn't talk about it, but I read mm. that you like cooking. So it's in some way, it just comes through like we're all connected and like everything is connected, right? Yeah, yeah. And for instance, so let's consider cooking. Yeah. By adjusting your diet, you can actually improve your well-being hugely. So, you know, I'm a podcaster now and I listen to all sorts of things and <laughs> came across this podcast about the Food and Mood Institute in Australia, where they actually do research on nutritional psychiatry. And some of the findings were, for instance, that by adjusting your diet, so increasing fiber, unsaturated fatty acids, nuts, proteins, a hugely plant-based diet, you can actually cultivate the gut bacteria that creates serotonin, so that chemical that's responsible for your mood. Yeah. So imagine 90% of serotonin is great in the gut. So yeah. what you eat will influence how you feel. Um, I think they found that with an appropriate change of the diet, they had 30% of the effect of group therapy. Wow. Wow. 30%. <laughs> That's significant, isn't it? Yeah, I was listening to a podcast by a chap called Tim Spector, who's a rheumatologist, I believe. But he was really curious as to how two identical twins with genetic material, you know, it's the same, can present completely differently. And what he drilled it down to was gut bacteria and the microbiome. And he said that the amount of bacteria in our gut weighs the same as our brain it's a really significant part of health and so yeah that's really interesting what you're saying there these, mm. these little details and i'd like to add one more thing as well i'm going to be campaigning here a little bit but uh, never mind. <laughs> <Go for it. laughs> well if we consider the environment and switching to a predominantly plant-based diet it's very beneficial so if we look at the numbers someone who eats beef produces 3.2 tons of carbon dioxide per year if you don't eat beef, you just are a meat eater, that's 2.4, okay? Now, if you're a vegetarian, that's 1.6 tons of CO2. And if you're a vegan, 1.4. So we're just looking at decreasing by 50% your carbon footprint related to your diet. Mm. Go for it, Piotr. Mm. Campaign. 
Yeah. Great. I've got a 21 year old daughter who's been on a mission for the last few years. We're now a family that eats hardly any meat. And we've all felt the benefit of it, actually. So, yeah, for anyone out there listening, Cowspiracy, I don't know whether you've seen the documentary. I have no idea how accurate it is on Netflix. But um, yeah, it's a very, very compelling listen. So, you obviously have a passion for the earth. And I'm wondering, based on your childhood, your experience of growing up, is that where that was first noticed? And what's it like for you being in Guatemala, being in a different place? Because I know EKTA talks a lot about place being important. And I know that you're kind of not in your home place, if you like. And so where does the interest in place come from? Well, if I look back into my childhood, it was a very adventurous and happy childhood in some way. So I grew up behind the Iron Curtain in communist Poland in the 80s. Okay. And we just had this sense of freedom. You know, we were just gathering with a group of friends and going into parks and gardens and doing all sorts of things and running around and making fires. And I remember once uh, the police brought me home, so we did this huge fire <laughs> in the middle of the estate. So I suppose that was the, the imprint of what is termed the ecological mind in Ecotia. Mm. And being in Guatemala, for me, it's about what does the land invite in me? So when I relax and when I see what's, what's happening here, what are my somatic responses mm. that invite me to be a particular place? I find living here both challenging and nourishing in terms of all the hiking, trips, volcanoes, and, and adventures, and challenging because there are certain things that are very difficult to deal with. You know, lots of traffic in Guatemala City, some criminal activity in certain places, um, you have to have your wits about you. And sometimes the idea of personal responsibility just doesn't exist here in the same way as it does in other countries. So that is challenging for me to make meaning of that at times. You know. Okay. Is this a temporary stay for you, Guatemala, or do you see yourself staying for longer? Or maybe this is kind of like a place that you see yourself going back to regularly. You seem to have established yourself quite well there. I don't know at the moment. I'm sure that I will keep coming back. And I'm sure that there will be other projects that will emerge. It's just, there's always something coming up. Yeah. So I, I'm certain I will always be somehow linked to Guatemala. And my husband is Guatemalan as well. So. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. There's a link. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we're always curious about is the question that I noted your answer on the forms that we asked. What is it about TA that you most love or that you find most compelling? And I loved your answer. So I'm going to invite you to, mm. to, to go back to that and tell us a little bit. Well, it's the adaptability of TA. I see it as a uh, you know, you've got all these concepts, ego states, transactions, games, script, and the relational school of TA. These are like pieces of Lego that you can put together to tailor them for a context and a client. And you need to be responsible and accountable for how you do that. Mm. And that's where the creativity and adaptability comes in, where it's a dynamic process. It's not that we've got this um, set plan and we're going to follow it. It never goes according to the plan. We know that. Yeah. Uh, so it's that preparedness to, I open my drawer and I see, okay, what's in my toolbox and what could be useful and what can serve the client to create a shift the client is looking for. Yeah, and I suppose there's something I would like to say to anyone who's writing the CTA that 
I really invite you to play with the ideas that it's about creating that inner structure where you've got a template of how do you like to put the pieces of the Lego together? What fits your values? What makes your heart sing? And that's so important because sometimes the CTA process is very arduous for many people. And yet it's got this moment when you see the piece of Lego coming together. It's like, oh, this is what I am about as a transactional analyst. Yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know what CTA means, it's the process of becoming a certified transactional analyst, which requires, I guess, in counseling, you'd have to do a case study and various other essay questions is that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm kind of getting toward the tail end of completing mine at the moment. I think that idea of playing with it, somebody gave me the permission to enjoy the process and make the most of the process in terms of learning because it could be felt as quite an arduous test of will mm. to keep writing when you've got other things to do. But what about you, Perul? Are you writing up your CTA? Yeah, I'm writing it. Are you in the middle yes. of it? I'm at the start, actually, not the okay. middle yet. Yeah. Right. But getting there. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, I agree with you. I think when you give yourself permission to play with many concepts, you start to see yourself emerge as a counselor as well which is very interesting. Yeah. And then the question that we always ask is, why is TA not so well known? And maybe some people have said, but it is well known, whereas others have had lots of different theories. But I was curious as to what, what your thoughts and ideas were around that, Piotr. I think there's many reasons. One of them is marketing, you know, in terms of how do we sell ourselves, how we position ourselves. It's also that TA in some way is on the cusp between the academic world and, and the world of you know psychology, psychotherapy. That I remember when I was collaborating with an institute of educational transactional analysis in Poland, where they actually do really cool research. We did some study on uh, passivity cross-culturally, so looking at patterns of teacher passive behaviors in Ukraine, Poland, UK, and Guatemala. And when we're trying to publish it, it seemed like, well, it wasn't sort of academic enough. And then when we wanted to get some training or, or get some sort of support, it seemed that the academics were not TA enough, you know, in some way. So that's, you know, where is our position? In some way, we're not academic enough. And then if you're an academic, you're not TA enough. You know? Interesting. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting, your answer around that. And when I first read your forms, hearing that you had been introduced to TA through the University of Manchester, which is my university, I thought, oh, maybe something's changing there. Maybe someone's involved. And I know there are people around the world in different universities who, who teach TA. But uh, you said in one of the things you said in your answer was talking about courses that are available that are accredited. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. thought that was an interesting, interesting subject to explore. Yeah. So, for instance, a few weeks ago, I went to a meeting with an NGO that trains teachers and they say, yeah, we know transactional analysis. We studied it at university. Mm. And yeah, it is known. The problem is that for many people, it is TA, classical TA quite often. And people wouldn't have an idea about things like the relational school or, or equal TA. And that the process of accreditation is long and expensive as well. Yeah, that's true. That is a bit of a barrier. Yeah. How we might be able to address that and see how we can make TA training more accessible as TA, one of the beauties is that it is accessible conceptually, but not so much academically or the training courses, which is an interesting awareness. Is there anything for you 
that you would want to share with the listeners? Anything that you're particularly passionate about that you would like to put out there to the TA audience? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, well, myth busting, I suppose. Myth busting. Uh, that is another one of the questions we often ask. But because of time, <laughs> I thought, I'm not going now. I'm going to ask you what you want to do. So uh, I, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> well, I suppose the myth that counseling isn't deep, counseling transactional analysis. Because I remember when I was in an exam preparation group or mock exam, and I was with there were some psychotherapists and it's, we did our tapes and all that, uh, our answers. Um, and someone said to me, have you not considered training as a psychotherapist? Because you work quite deeply. And actually, <laughs> the point is, TA counseling is a very profound way of working. We want to invite all the ego states. We want to invite resources. It's in the same way I think you can compare psychotherapists to someone who may be a surgeon and a counselor to someone who is a physiotherapist. And the certain conditions that maybe can be treated with physiotherapy and certain commitment. Okay, yeah. It's really important to see and account for the depth and the impact that the counselling field can have worldwide. Right. I love that illustration. I run a physio clinic. My wife is a physio. And her expertise is so broad. And I think that's such a lovely way of seeing it, where a surgeon, often surgeons specialize in a particular body area and will be very specific about the kind of work they do. Whereas, yeah, my wife works very globally. So great illustration. Love it. Okay. I love how many visual things we have from this talk right now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the surgeon physiotherapist, we have the Lego and how TA concepts are about creating uh, what you need. I love how you talked about the trickling of water and how you go where you're needed. You go with the flow. Mm. And these are just beautiful, very strong images to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So just in closing, are you working on any interesting projects at the moment? Anything? I mean, it sounds like your work is really interesting anyway in Guatemala, but I'm just curious if there's anything else in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. So one and a half months ago, a couple of colleagues uh, came from the UK. Uh, Rosalind Sharples and Joe Grace came oh, and great. we were what, mm-hmm, and we participated in fire ceremonies with my spiritual guides. They also work as counsellors, right? So in some way, they can contact the ancestors and they uh, provide counselling in front of the fire. And what we're looking at is the relationship of the spiritual guide with the community. So what happens in a context that is very collectivistic, Mm. and if you consider the spiritual guide is responsible for counting the time, the spiritual guide would provide the time structure and people who are in the tribe, they will be in a sort of symbiotic relationship. They don't know what day of the week there is because in the Mayan calendar, you don't have weekends, you just have days. So we're looking at what happens in that relationship. What can we learn from that? And I'm not idealizing indigenous cultures in any way. It's just being curious. What can we look at in ourselves if we superimpose it with another context? Yeah, so we're going to be presenting this at the conference in conference. the UK. And oh. the, the, yeah, yeah, we're doing a workshop there with two colleagues. Yeah. I might have to change my workshop then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, very welcome. Yeah, so that's one project. And another one, I'm part of the social engagement committee as part of ITAI. 
And at the moment, we're looking at the theme of hope and this because um, the world is not in, isn't in a very good place, as we all know. The war in Ukraine, the earthquake. Yeah. Tell us so, more about the Social Engagement Committee. What's the purpose and the aim of that? Well, we're looking at how to bring TA into many contexts and how to engage socially people who are part of ITAI to identify where we can have impact and what we can bring to the international ITA community to strengthen our engagement in our community. Okay, fantastic. Sounds like you've got a very rich tapestry of work and engagement in lots of different ways. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a conversation with you. I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours. There's mm. just so much to discuss. I think when you mentioned about the state of the world, I was thinking again about what you said, the murder of Mother Earth and how much responsibility we need to take or are we taking and how autonomy plays a role there. And I wonder what you think about that since just as a parting thought, is there something you want to share about the connections there. I think we really need to be mindful where we are in the world and what is the power that comes from my privilege and how can I share this power to influence the world to make it more equitable. That yeah, that that's I suppose. Because we don't know what it means to wake up in the morning when the ground is shaking. And the fact that we can be safe there's a lot of personal power and agency that we cannot afford to waste. Yeah. Mm. Piotr, thank you so much for your mm. time, for your thoughts and your reflections. Really grateful for you giving us this opportunity to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. As always, if you found anything in today's episode interesting, please feel free to reach out. You can visit our website, which has lots of information and TA resources, transactionalanalysispodcast.com. You can connect with us on all major platforms, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And you can email us at threepeopleinyourhead at gmail.com using the number three rather than the word. If you aren't already, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Sponsored by the International Transactional Analysis Association. You can find more information on the ITAA at www.itaaworld.org and the European Association for Transactional Analysis. You can find more information on IATA at www.iatanews.org.